church plant. This is actually our second time gathering here. We are in the preview season of our existence. And what that simply means is kind of like Broadway. That's where we got the terminology from. Um, Broadway has a grand opening show, but before that, they have different preview shows. And it's the same show. You're going to get the same stuff. It's just our way of saying, hey, don't judge us too harshly yet. If the music's not right yet, or if the lights go off, or if the preaching sucks, don't get mad yet, all right? We're working on it, okay? Um, but we're so happy you're here. The reason why we started this is because we're a group of people compelled by the story of Jesus. Now, you might not be, so that's the first thing you need to hear. If you're not, wherever you are on the spiritual journey, whatever you feel about the story of Jesus, um, or don't feel if you need more information, or if you tried it out and it didn't work for you, it's perfect wherever you are, and we're so happy you're here. Um, but we're compelled by this story, so we talk a lot about this story. And so what we've been doing the last couple weeks is answering the question, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? Gospel is a fancy word that comes from the Greek euangelion, which means good news report. So picture a newspaper boy holding up the front page saying, extra, extra, read this. You need to hear this. Something happened and it's affecting you. It's affecting the world. What is so good about this news that it would compel a group of people to want to start a community centered purely around discussing it, telling it, um, debating it, trying to be transformed by it? What type of community does the gospel create? Or another way of putting that are, would be what is distinctive? What are the distinctives about the gospel-centered community opposed to other forms of community? And for the last 2,000 years, different denominations have answered that question differently. So I'm from the South, I'm from North Carolina. Yeah, we got some Southerners in here. Um, I don't know if you can hear it in the, the bacall. Apparently I say bacall's weird. Is bacall's weird to say like that? A little bit, all right, you know what? You guys, whatever. Um, so I lost my train of thought. Southern Baptist, that's where I was going with it that. So the South, I grew up in a Southern Baptist church. And so they would answer that question, what is distinctive about the gospel-centered community? They would say, it's your personal piety. It's the way it transforms my morality. And, and there's some truth to that, but I would say by and large, that's, that's secondary. That's a byproduct. That's not purely the gospel. Um, or you have the Catholics. The Catholics would say that what's distinctive about the gospel-centered community would be the sacraments. The fact that we take, partake of the sacraments week in and week out. And again, there's some truth to that, but I don't think that's primarily it either. So then the question is, what is distinctive about the gospel-centered community? And perhaps let's look at the New Testament, see what Paul has to say about it. And anytime you're asking a question about the church, um, you gotta go to the letter to the Ephesians. Ephesus was this, this town, this bustling city in Asia Minor, and this entire letter Paul writes to this community is, is aimed at answering some of these questions of saying, hey, this is what you used to be, now you're this. This is what, um, this is what you're gonna be about going forward. So today what we're gonna look at is uh, just a portion of that letter. Ephesians 2, if you have your Bibles or your smartphones, or we're also gonna put it up here. Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 22 is what we're looking at. That's what Paul says. He says, so then, remember that at one time you Gentiles by birth called the uncircumcision 
by those who are called the circumcision. Now, it's a physical circumcision made in the flesh by human hands. But remember that you were at that time without Christ, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, and in his flesh he has made both groups, both the uncircumcision group and the circumcision group, he's made them both into one and has broken down the dividing wall, which is the hostility between us. He's abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace, and might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death that hostility through it. So he came and he proclaimed peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him both of us have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are built together spiritually into a dwelling place for God. Can we just pray real quick before we get started? Lord, we are so compelled by you There's something in this story that grabs us at the most fundamental level and garners our attention. And we don't understand you. We don't understand fully this gospel, this good news. But as the song said, we know that we were blind once and we see. There's something about you that makes sense. And we want to know more. We want to know more about you. We want to learn what it is to to follow you. Uh, We want to learn what it is to be your community, a community constituted by your gospel. So Lord, bless this time today. Uh, Speak to your people. It's in your name. Amen. So what type of community does the gospel create? Now, as I read that passage, the first thing that immediately sticks out to me would be this. The gospel community is comprised of bitter enemies. The gospel community is comprised of bitter enemies. Now, where am I getting that from? I'm getting that from the very first line. When Paul goes, remember, you who were called the uncircumcision by those called the circumcision, remember. Now, what's he doing there? He's, is he pointing out just a, a casual and unfortunate sociological reality? No. He's actually addressing the central theme, the central point of contention in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're the evangelists, right? They, the question that they're answering, this is a good exercise for any of us going back to college here, any of us ever trying to understand what an author is intending to say, ask the question of what is their main point? There's a question that authors are always trying to answer. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the question they're answering is who is Jesus? Who is this Jesus of Nazareth, this carpenter 
who, who came and lived and did some miracles and taught some super like compelling stuff and then died on a cross and then supposedly was resurrected from the grave. Who is this? They're concerned with that question. But then for the rest of the New Testament, when you get to Acts, which is the story about the first church, and you get to Paul's letters, of which Ephesians would be one, he's not answering the question, who is Jesus? He assumes that we're already on the same page with that. Jesus is the Messiah. Cool. Now, what does that mean? How does it form this community? Or the question of the New Testament, and it was always a joke in seminary, how Jewish does a Christian need to be? We used to laugh really hard in seminary when that was said. Please still be my friends. <laughs> um, but that, that's really the question. Because what you see happening is for the last 2,000 years, I'm speaking at Jesus' day. So from 2,000 years before Jesus' day, thousands of years, the Jews, the people of Israel, they have uh, writings, they have prophecies, they have psalms detailing God's interaction with them. They are God's people. And to be a Jew in this history that they have, circumcision is the premier sign of identity. Like, you could not conceive of a Jewish identity outside the gift of circumcision. To put it in our terms, like, I think that the, the sign of being an American is free speech, right? I mean, there could be some others, but probably the premier sign of being an American is that we have free speech. So to say something like, hey, you can be an American without free speech, it makes no sense. You're not an American then, right? It's the same thing. The sign of being a Jew was circumcision. That was the gift. The two went hand in hand. There was an inability to conceive of their identity outside of this gift. Likewise, or, or, or conversely, to be called the uncircumcision was not a um, casual description. It was a hateful epitaph. It was politically charged. It was a bad word. So like we have stories where, um, uh, like David and Goliath. So David is this, this Hebrew shepherd boy and he shows up to a, to a battle between the army of Israel and the Philistine army. And there's this giant Philistine named Goliath and he's taunting the army of Israel. And David hears his taunts and he becomes so angry. And he goes, who is that uncircumcised Philistine to defy the armies of the living God. And probably the, the Israelite army was like, oh, no, he did it. No, they probably didn't do that. But to call someone the uncircumcised was not casual. It wasn't neutral. It was hostile. It was angry. It was to denounce them, to curse them. So take it back to Paul's discussion in, in Ephesians now. For Paul to start out his discussion about the makeup of the church, the gospel-centered community, and to frame it along these lines, circumcised and uncircumcised, was to call immediate attention to the deep, millennia-long animosity between these groups. Like, this wasn't a fact. The reality is that God had always been Israel's God, and now he's going to the hated Gentiles the uncircumcised folk and bringing them into the family. And this wasn't something that they just casually stumbled upon, just so you know. The two chief architects of the New Testament community, Paul and Peter, 
both experience direct revelation from God of this fact. There's a, there's a story in the book of Acts where Peter is praying and he goes into uh, an ecstatic trance, a vision, and he sees a table with all sorts of four-footed animals, uh, unclean animals that Jews were not allowed to eat. And he hears the voice of God say, get up and eat, Peter. And Peter is appalled. He's like, no, never. I would never eat that. I'm a Jew. And God goes, what I have called clean, don't call unclean. And then as soon as he comes out of this vision, there's a Roman centurion there who was sent by God to hear the gospel. And that's how Peter knows that um, God is extending the family. And he's bringing in the hated Gentiles into their covenant. Paul, he's on a donkey and he's knocked off by a vision of the ascended Jesus. And it blinds them for three days. So both the chief architects of the church, I only say that to prove the point that both the chief architects of the gospel community did not just casually happen upon this new reality. Oh, God wants to welcome the uncircumcised. That was an appalling, horrifying thought that required direct revelation. Now, what does this mean? All this to say, what does this mean? Well, throughout this letter, Paul talks about a mystery. He calls it the mystery of the gospel. Ta musterion tu uangeliu, the mystery of the gospel. And it's related to vindication. Throughout the history of God's interaction with Israel, they constantly have promises of saying, I will vindicate you, Israel. You're being persecuted now but I will vindicate you. You're being enslaved now. I will vindicate you and I will vindicate my name. And so Israel assumed that vindication meant the same thing to them as it did to God. What does it mean? It means if I vindicate myself over you, you're destroyed. I am proven right and you are proven wrong, right? And generally it's through some form of violence. To vindicate myself over you is to beat you in some form. And so they assumed that when God vindicated them, it would be at the expense of destroying the uncircumcised nations. But the mystery of the gospel, God vindicates not by destroying, but by adopting his enemies. God vindicates not by destruction, but by adoption. God is going to those not his people, to those who hate him, and he's saying, I'm going to show you how powerful I am. I'm going to show you how true I am. And I'm going to vindicate myself over you, not by destroying you, but by loving you so sacrificially that you're going to see the arrow of your ways and you're going to join the family. See, physical violence, that's easy vindication. Any form of violence, verbal violence, emotional manipulation, that's easy vindication. That doesn't take any effort. But vindication through love, vindication to win over an enemy and turn them into a friend and a family member, and especially enemies like this that have millennia of animosity, that's the vindication of the gospel. It was a good story I just read the other day um, about Derek Black in the Washington Times. Did anyone see that story, that article? So Derek Black, um, he's a 27-year-old. And he was born into one of the uh, top families of the white nationalist movement. 
And so he was pegged from his early days to take over this, this group, the white nationalist group. And so he was fed this ideology, fed this literature, became a very premier um, leader in the group, goes away to college, and he attempts not to, he, he still believes everything he's writing about, but he just doesn't want people to know about it. So he's trying to hide his, his true self um, in college. And it comes out one day that someone discovered a picture of him uh, at a white nationalist rally and uh, outs him on the community discussion board. And everyone just writes the most terrible things. And some of the tame ones are stuff like this. He chooses to be a racist public figure. We choose to call him a racist in public. Another one said, I just want this guy to die a painful death along with his entire family. Is that too much to ask? Those are some of the tame ones. And Derek, he moves off campus. He stays quiet. He doesn't answer any of these. Um, and he just tries to be, do his own thing. Well, there was a guy named Matthew, a Jewish student. And he had Shabbat dinners every Friday night. And Matthew decided that opposing this guy won't do anything. To actually oppose or, or fight this guy It'll just drive the wedge deeper. Perhaps the best way to change his thinking is to include him. And so he invites Derek to one of his Shabbat dinners. And it was the only social invitation Derek received the entire semester. And so he came. Long story short, he kept coming back. And eventually, uh, Matthew and some of his friends, who weren't all Jews, just different walks of life, different beliefs, faith systems, became friends with Derek, befriended him. And then eventually... They were able to ask questions about his ideology and they started to debate. Um, as friends through love, over dinner, there's a method to the madness. There's a reason why we always have dinner, guys. There's a reason why we always have brunch. And eventually, Derek um, renounced his belief and has walked away from the white nationalist movement through inclusion, vindication through love. So Hope Brooklyn, Knowing that the gospel community brings together bitter enemies, what does that mean for us? And we talk about this a lot. It's no, it's no secret that there's a tension in Brooklyn. There's a tension in New York City. Brooklyn's changing. The way we frame it is between old Brooklyn and new Brooklyn. And old Brooklyn, I'll say this every time, doesn't mean outdated. It just means first. They were here first. So we have old Brooklyn and we have new Brooklyn. And you, it, it's really interesting the way this metaphor works because um, old Brooklyn has the history. They have the scars. They have the frustration, like the Jews, to say, we've been persecuted for thousands of years. We, we've been the ones who were here before anyone else wanted to be here. And now, suddenly, new Brooklyn's coming and reaping all the inheritance, like the Gentiles. And they're like struggling to figure out, how does this work? And these two Brooklyns are clashing because they're trying to vindicate themselves over the other. But for the church in Brooklyn, for Hope Brooklyn, the way that we are the gospel-centered community is not by having one group or the other, but bringing both to the same table and doing the hard and painful work of forgiveness and reconciliation. That's the way God's name is vindicated in Brooklyn. When, when this tension in Brooklyn, when they walk around and they see a community of old and new Brooklyn, 
not only friends, but family who know each other, who love each other. They ask the question, what is this? What, how did this happen? And that's the way that we vindicate. But there's more than just this. There's more. The gospel community is not just bitter enemies together. The gospel community is also a new creation. A new creation. It's something the world can't accommodate or describe because it's something the world has never seen. So in Paul's writings in verse 13, he goes, Now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And he is our peace. And in his flesh, he has made both groups into one and has dismantled the dividing wall, which is the hostility between us, that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two. That he might create in himself one new humanity. The Greek there is not ambiguous. It says heni, which means one, kainon, which means new, and anthropos. You probably recognize that. It's where we get anthropological. It means human. One new human. What Paul is saying is, this isn't just Jew and Gentile, circumcised and uncircumcised, sitting side by side as cordial friends or begrudging friends. This is Jew and Gentile composed, comprised into one body, a new creation. Or, or the artistic metaphor might be a mosaic. Have y'all ever seen a mosaic? I think we got a picture up here. Um, I apologize for white Jesus right there, but it's all they had. I looked. Um, but basically a mosaic is an art form where you have different little stones comprise a bigger picture, right? It is each individual parts, but the individual parts have now become a bigger story. The whole is bigger than the sum of its parts. And to remove any one part is to do irreparable harm to the, to the story, to the picture, to the image. We have now been comprised together. The bitterest of enemies have been comprised together into one body. Now, how does that happen? <clears throat> well, generally the way it works is the things we're proudest of are things that set us apart, right? The things that we're proudest of are things that make us unique. And so Paul addresses this and he goes, Jews are proud of their history and, and their circumcision and they're proud of their moral superiority and Greeks are proud of their wisdom and their rhetoric and their cultural power. But Christians, we are proud of Christ crucified. And the church, our object of boasting no longer is internal, but it's of this gospel that has brought us together. The things we're proudest of are Christ crucified. So old Brooklyn is proud that they've always been here. And they have the history and the street cred. And New Brooklyn is proud of their artistry and their individuality. But Hope Brooklyn, we become proud and boast only that Jesus would save me. Yes, even me. See, that, that's what's so interesting. Because when you recognize um, the gospel community, when the gospel sinks in deep, we don't run away from our brokenness anymore. We run toward the brokenness. Because we're not afraid. If the cross of Jesus means anything, it means that I am now free of the fear that my sin is too much to forgive. He has said it's not. Jesus, the ultimate judge, has assured me that as weighty as my brokenness is, he can forgive that too. 
It's not too much. Therefore, as unfun as it will be, I now no longer need to be afraid of doing the painful work of asking those I have wronged for forgiveness and seeking reconciliation. I don't have to be afraid of having my enemy tell me who I am, one who has caused them pain, because I've already had my ultimate enemy tell me who I am, his beloved child forgiven unto eternity and included into his body. I wanna read that one more time. I don't have to be afraid of having my enemy tell me who I am, one who has caused them pain, because I've already had my ultimate enemy tell me who I am, his beloved child forgiven unto eternity and included into his body. What does that mean? That means that Christians, what sets us apart is that we are the quickest to ask for forgiveness. And we don't have to be afraid of being broken. We don't have to be afraid of messing up. It hurts, it's embarrassing, but we get to be the community of reconciliation because the ultimate judge, the one who has final say-so, has already said, I got you. I'll pay the bill. Now you can go do the work of reconciliation because you don't have to be afraid that it's too much to forgive now. There's a guy um, who I know named Brian Bakke, and um, he's very, very committed to racial reconciliation. And he moved, he and his family, into the toughest street in South Chicago a couple years back. And his aim was um, to pursue racial reconciliation there on that street, which is gospel-centered aim. A year later, he had to go from house to house in tears and apologize to his neighbors who were being pushed out because a white family had moved into the block. Totally not his aim at all. And the the point that proves is that this world is broken. There are systems in this world that we don't even have control over. We are simultaneously problem and solution. But we witness to Brooklyn by being a gospel-centered community in Brooklyn, a new creation comprised of formerly bitter enemies, together in one body. So it's former enemies, it's one body, but how did Jesus do this? And I've hinted at it a little bit, but how did he create this community? How can the dividing wall of hostility, how can thousands of years of animosity come down such that you see Jews and Gentiles eating at the same table? How in the world did he do that? Paul writes, Now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near. By what? By the blood of Christ. And he is our peace. And in his flesh, he has made both groups into one. Broken down the dividing wall. What did he do it in? In his flesh. He has abolished the law that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, making peace, and might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death that hostility through it. He did it by his blood. He did it with his flesh. He did it in the cross. The gospel community of the Father is bound together by the blood of the Son. It is imperative that we remember every day that Jesus, the Son of God in flesh who walked and lived, the only one who can claim a perfectly obedient life, he was killed 
and resurrected with scars. With scars. What does that mean? That is imperative. It means that the distinctive characteristic of the church, of the gospel community, is we're all scarred. And whereas before, whereas outside of these walls, outside of this community, everyone said, no, 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 hide your brokenness, hide your scars, lead with your strengths. The gospel community says, no, we lead with our weaknesses. We boast with our scars because our savior, the one who has the ultimate say, he has them too. So we don't have to be afraid of ours anymore. How countercultural is that? How countercultural is to meet someone and say, yes, I am that person. To not hide all the ways that we're all clearly broken, but to say we're a community that talks about it. That's why we say Hope Brooklyn comes face to face. It's our way of saying no pretense, no pretense, no hiding. Granted, it takes time to get to know people and trust people. We understand that, but no hiding. The one expectation is that we are fully ourselves, fully broken, and redeemed because we're able to look at the broken one who was resurrected to say, look, I have him too. Don't be afraid of yours anymore. I make all things new. I take signs of brokenness and transform them into glory. We establish our entire community on the foundation of an executed God and a resurrected God, still bearing the signs of his weakness. His scars are the blood that keeps the whole body alive. Or as Paul says, in him the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord. The lie of Satan, the lie of the evil one, get your stuff together and then come to church. That is a lie. The truth of Jesus, the gospel, you don't have to get your stuff together. So long as you're thinking about getting your stuff together, you're actually not getting it. Focus on me. Look at what I've done. That's all that matters. And, and, and with our eyes cast upon Jesus, we find that our conceit melts away, our pride melts away. Any animosity we're holding toward our brother or our sister, it melts away. Because as we focus on him, we realize, oh my gosh, look how broken I am. How could I ever hold it against this person? I think one of the truest um, representations of the good news comes from a book called The Brothers Karamazov. And in this book, it tells of three brothers, and one of them was a monk. Um, but he has a, an awakening to the gospel later on in his career, already being a monk. And it, it says, basically the phrase is, he's overcome by the depths of grace. He's overcome by the reality that no amount of good deeds will ever earn him love, and no amount of terrible deeds will ever lose his standing in God's eyes. He's overcome, and he falls to the earth, and it says he longed to forgive everyone for everything and to be forgiven. He longed to forgive everyone for everything and to be forgiven. Friends, the mark of the gospel community, when we can say as a church, we long to forgive everyone for everything and be forgiven seek forgiveness and we model that by having bitter enemies comprised into one body built upon the scars of an executed and resurrected God that's unlike any other um, faith tradition 
that we serve a failed God by all extents and purposes. Like, he failed. He didn't, he didn't win. He didn't amass a following. He didn't use force and defeat people in battle. He chose victory through emptying of himself, through sacrifice. Therefore, we take up his mantle and we witness to the world by leading with our scars, our brokenness, because we don't have to be afraid of them anymore. We don't have to fear them anymore. The gospel community is made of bitter enemies brought into one body, sustained by the scars of the executed God.